a reading that helps, doesn't it? A reading from Luke chapter 17, verse 20 and 21, and chapter 19, verse 11 and 12. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Erica. Well, good morning. To you, my name is Matt. I am one of the pastors here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, would love to um, before we leave. We have been looking at this massive concept in the Bible uh, this fall called the kingdom of God. It's such a, it's such a big uh, idea, such a big concept that we really are taking the entire fall uh, semester, as it were, to really lean in deep and figure out, okay, what does this mean? What does this mean for our lives? And our, our kind of in-house Matt Howell definition that we've been saying, this is, you know, if you're going to define the kingdom, this is, this is a simple shorthand way to define it. It is the upside-down revolution of God making all things new. And for this morning, I want to add just one piece to that. I want to just tack on one little phrase to it, just to, as, you know, we're, we're building this thing out week by week. Uh, but for today, I want to, we're going to define it this way, that the kingdom is the upside down, already not yet, revolution of God making all things new. So what I want to do this morning is really drill into that phrase. What does it mean that the kingdom is already here and simultaneously not yet here? Because that's a strange thing to say. So let's just jump in. We're, we're going to jump in and talk about two big ideas, what that means number one, and then secondly, why that matters. What that means, what do we mean when we say it's already and not yet here, and then why does that matter? Who cares? So first, um, what does that mean? Very simply, it just means that the Bible teaches that uh, the reign of God has begun with the arrival of Jesus. I mean, we sang that in our opening song when we, when we started here, Hail to the Lord's Anointed, His reign on earth begun. The revolution has begun. The kingdom has started. It is here. And yet, at the same time, uh, it's not fully here. We're still waiting for the kingdom to come in its fullness. And so we're living in this weird overlap. The kingdom has begun, but it's not fully here. I mean, think of it like this. Think of it like a sunset. If you, uh, if you ever wake up early enough to see the sunset, you know that you've gone through hours and hours and hours of darkness, pitch black darkness, and as the sun is coming up, the darkness starts to lighten, and if you're in a spot where you can see the sun cresting up over the horizon, you can see the sun. The sun is here. Now, if you hit pause and freeze-framed that moment and ask the question, okay, is this moment night or day? You'd say, uh, it's kind of both. I mean, it's still dark, but there's the sun. The sun is here. The day is here, but it's not fully here. In fact, when you can see the sun, it's a guarantee that only more light is coming. Day is on its way, but for the moment at least, during a sunrise, you're in the middle of this uh, overlap. Already not yet. 
or uh, probably a better way to conceptualize this is to uh, think about pregnancy. About a little over 13 years ago, uh, my family, we were living in Boone, North Carolina, and I was driving to work one morning. It was a Wednesday morning, I remember. It was about a 15-minute commute to campus where I worked at the time. And uh, my wife calls me. I was about halfway to campus. She calls me. says, Matt, you need to turn around. I just took a pregnancy test, and it came back positive. And in my shock and stupidity, I said, you need to take another one. Those things don't always work. They're not always reliable. And <laughs> she waited for me to turn around, and I go back home, and she, you know, obliges and takes another test, and it comes back positive. And I said, uh those things can have false positives. We need to, we need to schedule another meeting. We got we to gotta schedule an appointment with the doctor. So my wife, you know, puts up with this, you know, idiot, and we go to the uh, doctor, and sure enough, she's right. She's pregnant. I was wrong. Zoe Kate, she was pregnant with our daughter, Zoe Kate. And so uh, Zoe Kate was here. She was here. In fact, just within a couple of weeks, you know, you could see our daughter's picture on the little sonogram thing, you know, where they put goo all over your belly, and you can see, you can, there she is, you can see her. Uh, in fact, uh, we, our lives started to change. We bought diapers and bottles and books, and we, you know, set up the nursery. Like, our lives had changed. Zoe Kate was here, and yet she wasn't fully here. She wasn't totally fully here yet. We had to wait a few more months for Zoe Kate to arrive in all of her glory and all of her fullness, uh, which she did. But living in that overlap, that's the idea. That's the picture. The picture says that of, of Jesus' kingdom, the revolution has begun. Jesus has inaugurated and started his kingdom, and yet the world is still a mess. The world's still broken, and he hasn't come back. He's, you know, he hasn't come back in all of his fullness yet. In fact, let me show you where I'm getting this from, from these two passages. In Luke chapter 17, that first passage here, it says this. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor, nor will they say, lo, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. In other words, he's saying the kingdom of God doesn't come with obvious observable signs that you can just see. But nevertheless, the kingdom of God is, present tense, currently in your midst. It is here. In fact, if you rewind just a couple, uh, a few chapters earlier, in Luke chapter 4, there's this amazing scene where uh, Jesus is at a synagogue in Nazareth, and he's like guest preaching that morning, filling in for the pastor, I guess, and he gets handed a scroll. It's a scroll of the Hebrew scriptures of, in Isaiah, and he opens it up, and he reads this passage where it says, you know, one day the, this messianic king is going to come and preach good news to the poor, and he's going to liberate captives, and he's going to heal the blind, and the kingdom's going to come, in other words. And he rolls up the scroll, puts it down, and he goes over and sits down. They, they used to preach sitting down, which I'm a little envious of. But he sat down and gave the shortest sermon ever in the history of sermons. He said, today, that scripture is fulfilled. Just a mic drop sermon moment. But what's he saying? He's saying all of those promises about the coming king in the coming kingdom today, they're here. They're, they're, they're being fulfilled in your midst. The kingdom is already here. And at the same time, look at this uh, Luke 19 passage. Uh, it says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable 
because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Here's what's going on there. There's all these images. There's all these pictures in the, in the Hebrew scriptures about when God comes as king, he's going to uh, establish his kingdom and fix the world and make everything right. And so there was this expectation that when God shows up, he's going to do this in one decisive, apocalyptic, forceful moment. And so here's Jesus, and he's convinced some followers of his that he's the king. He's been talking about the kingdom. He's the king, kingdom, 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 kingdom. And they're getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. And the disciples and his followers start to think, okay, this is the moment. This is it. Jesus is about to roll into the capital city, defeat our enemies, kick out the Romans, and set up his earthly kingdom. It's going to be awesome. And so Jesus tells this parable, which, you know, it's longer. In fact, we're going to look at it here in a couple of weeks. Uh, But the parable goes like this. Okay, there's this guy that leaves. And one day, way off in the future, someday he's going to return with his kingdom. So he's telling this parable to correct their thinking. The kingdom's not going to show up all at once. It's not yet here in its fullness. It's coming in the future. In fact, we prayed this morning. We pray every single week at Redeemer, your kingdom come. Why are we praying for God's kingdom to come? Because it's not here yet in all of its fullness. And we want it to come in all of its fullness. So you put all this together. Is the kingdom present or is the kingdom future? Yes. Is the kingdom already here or is it not yet here? Yes. Now, you may hear that and you think, okay, whatever. <laughs> this is all very abstract and I don't know what to do with this. What does this matter? So glad you asked. Great question. Um, let's look at that secondly. That's what it means. Why does this matter? And there's a million implications that we could kind of tease out about this, but I want to be really practical, and I want to give you three. Three implications of this already not yet reality about the kingdom. Uh, And so here's the first one. When you know that the kingdom is already here and yet not yet here, the first thing that this does is it mythologizes utopia. It mythologizes utopia, meaning... This idea that we can have a pain-free, problem-free paradise, it, it exposes that as a, as a myth, as a, as a, as a, as a, it's false. Here's what this means. Um, I really love self-improvement life hacks. I'm just kind of drawn to that for whatever reason. I'll see a video online. Somebody will post some organizational system that they've implemented in their kitchen of how they've, how they've organized their cleaning stuff under the sink or how they've organized their spices or how they've organized their pantry. And I see this and think, we have to buy that now. We have to implement this now. I want our kitchen to look like that. Or, um, you know, I love reading books about creating systems, systems for... Uh, uh, cleaning or, you know, how we're going to do chore charts. I read, I read books about how to incorporate systems into your work, into your workflow and creating rhythms and routines and things like that. Love that stuff. And um, it's easy for me, though, to begin to think if we can just implement these systems, if we can actually do it, if we can buy the stuff and do it, 
our life can look like it's an organized, clean, pain-free, problem-free home without any chaos, and it'll look like a pottery barn catalog. It, we can do it. We can get there. And when you realize, okay, wait, that the kingdom in its fullness, what we're longing for is not here and will not be here in this life, it, it just exposes all of that as a myth. We cannot receive and achieve problem-free, pain-free paradise in this life until Jesus returns. It mythologizes it. And this is where we have to be really careful, especially as Memphians, because as Memphians, we are painfully aware of what is broken and uh, hard and scary about our city. And so it's easy for us to believe this myth that if we can just live in that neighborhood, or if we can move to that part of the city, or if we can move to a different part of the country, or if you're like me, I get in these modes sometimes where it's like, if I can just move to Sweden, if I can just move to a different country altogether, then we will achieve the joyful, safe, organized, problem-free life that we're all longing for. And this shows you it's, it's a myth that doesn't exist. Now, of course, um, there are relatively safer neighborhoods to live in than others. There are relatively safer neighbor, neighborhoods or, or cities to live in than others. And, you know, you, you have to make those decisions. You have to be wise and think through what you, you, you need or what your family needs. All of that is right, 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 right. Caveat, caveat. Underneath it all, I do think there is an unchecked belief that we all have that if we can just get there, we will achieve utopia. If we can just get to that neighborhood, if we can get to that school, if we can get our inbox to zero, if we can get through this season of chaos in life, we can just get around the corner. If we can just get there, then utopia. And the already not yet kingdom shows you it's not true. In fact, you remember uh, Marie Kondo? Of course you do. She had that uh, Netflix show and, and showed if you just, you know, she's all into minimalism and getting rid of half of your stuff and thanking your stuff and then throwing it away. It's all about tidying. Um, and everybody loved it because we're like, yes, if I can get that, then I'll be happy. I will achieve utopia. You know, this article that came out, somebody just sent this to me, this article that came out in um, uh, NPR a couple years ago. It said, here's the, I'll just read you the title. Marie Kondo revealed that she's, quote, kind of given up on being so tidy. People freaked out. <laughs> That's the name of the article. Even she realized it's a myth. When you realize that um, the already not yet kingdom is, is that's the way that, that that's the world that we live in. What that does is it frees you from chasing the wind. It frees you from chasing the dream, Re really having this kind of highly anxious, if I just get that, if I can just achieve that, if I can get to that place, if I can get around this corner, if we can get through this season, then we'll, we'll have arrived, we'll get there, we'll be finally be happy. It's a myth. It frees you up to actually live in the world that you actually are living in and not chase the wind. That, that's the first thing. It mythologizes utopia. And here's the second thing, and it's, it's similar to the first. But the second implication of the already not yet kingdom is that it also normalizes struggle. It normalizes struggle. If you're somebody who trusts Jesus, and I don't assume that everybody in here does, we never do here at Redeemer, 
but there's a lot of us in here that would say that we do. And if you do, then that means um, that you are personally living a microcosm of this already not yet reality. The, the, the kingdom has come into your life. In fact, li- listen to this. Here's um, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You are new. The kingdom has come into your life. And look at, listen to 1 John 3.2. It says, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. In other words, what that means is you and I are a work in progress. There's a giant sign over your life, and there's a giant sign over my life that says under construction, which means that as you go through this life, being constructed, process, progress, you will experience struggle. And you do struggle. You face temptations. You wrestle with things you don't want to wrestle with. You see things about yourself that you hate. You, you, you wrestle with things, and you will wrestle with things until you die or until Jesus comes back. That's the name of the game. Struggle is normal. Now, if you're anything like me, living in this tension of Okay, the kingdom is already here, but yet it's not yet here. That, for, that, that means there's struggle. Living in that tension is really hard to do. It's really hard for me personally. And if you're anything like me, you're tempted to go to one of two extremes. So what I mean by that is let's say that you start to bump up against the things in yourself that you don't like. I, you know, I bump up against these things all the time in me. I see these things like, oh, my goodness, there it is again. I want that to go away. I don't like my anxiety. I don't like when I am forgetful. I don't like how easily irritated I can be. I don't like the fear that I feel like I constantly have. I don't like this. I want this to go away. When you bump up against those things, sometimes you have this experience, or at least I have this experience, where I say things like, I'll never change. I'm just stuck like this. I'm just irredeemable. This is just the way I am. I'm always going to be like this. And when I'm thinking like that, or when you're thinking like that, what we're doing in that moment is we're denying the already aspect of the kingdom. Because what the the already part of the kingdom says is, no, the, the kingdom has come. God is at work inside of you, which means change is possible. Change may not come in the way that I want it to. It may not come in the timing that I want it to. But the Bible also says that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work inside of you, is at work inside of me. That's pretty powerful to execute change. But I want to go to that extreme or I run to the other extreme where when I bump up against those things inside of me and I see that I'm struggling with something, I'm tempted to go into kind of despair mode because I'll see those things and think, well, I should be past this by now. I should be beyond this. I shouldn't be struggling with this still. I should, be, I should be beyond this. The fact that I'm struggling detonates a shame bomb. But when I'm thinking like that, I'm denying the not yetness of the kingdom. Because really deep down, I'm believing a lie that I can achieve 
uh, perfect Christ-likeness in this life. And if I struggle, it, it sends me to, it makes me feel like a failure, makes me feel like I've defeated, and it just, you just, you, you're left only thinking naively about reality. But you hold these two things together, living in this tension, hope is possible, uh, change is possible, and struggle's always going to be normal. This is, part of, this is part of the deal. You know what that does? It changes your relationship with struggle from uh, being one of uh, a relationship of contempt to a relationship uh, of one of compassion. And I wish I had a lot more life experience on this point to share with you. I feel like I am still learning this, wrestling with this. In fact, yesterday I was talking to Catherine about this, where it's like I see the things inside of myself and I am so knee-jerk reflex to go to contempt, hate that the struggle is there, want the struggle to go away, as opposed to, okay, the already not yet nature of the kingdom converts that into compassion, compassion for yourself. This is the way, this is what is normal. To follow Jesus, you will struggle. It mythologizes utopia, normalizes struggle. Here's the last one. It incentivizes resistance. It incentivizes resistance. Here's what I mean by that. If you think about the original Star Wars trilogy, the old school one, you know, with Jabba the Hutt and Darth Vader, you know the gang, Luke Skywalker. Um, that story, what's fascinating about that story is that, you know, you, you enter the story and the galaxy has, has uh, been taken over by this evil empire, you, you experience the story as somebody who, you're in enemy-occupied territory. And there's this evil empire, but there is this rebellion that's happening. There's this resistance movement that's, that's happening in the midst of it, where they're pushing back. They say, no, no, no more. We don't want to be run by this evil empire any longer. And you think about this resistance movement, uh, like, what do they have? They got nothing. They got a broken-down spaceship. It barely works. It's all junky. They've got a... Uh, you know, giant, hairy gorilla that can't speak English. They've got a uh, semi-incestuous brother-sister duo. And it's like, okay, so the, here's, this is what's taking on th- the empire. They've got a Death Star. They've got Darth Vader. They've got eight million stormtroopers with bad aim. But they've got eight million stormtroopers. And the point is, I mean, I really, <laughs> I am probably... I'm probably stretching this analogy to its breaking point. But that story is a picture of what it means to be a Christian. Because what it means to be a Christian is that you and I woke up in, uh, in a, uh, a world that is run by an evil empire. That the world is governed by death and sin and Satan, and yet there is this resistance movement. There's a rebellion that's happening in the midst of it, and it's called the kingdom of God, and it's pushing back against the empire and saying, no, 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 we don't want to be run by those sorts of things anymore. And this, the people that make up this resistance are a bunch of ragtag morons who don't have their life together, and we don't, we, we, you know, we're not powerful, we're weak, we're dummies. But that's part of what it means to be a Christian. You're joining a resistance movement, not up against political, you know, earthly political forces, but against spiritual evil empire forces. Here's what I mean to make this really practical. It's like the empire of the world pressures you um, into uh, overwork. 
where it says, if you want to make a name for yourself, if you want to get a good job, if you want to get a title, you better work yourself to the, down to the bones, down to the dust. And as people of the resistance, we say, no, I will not overwork. I will rest. I will put my phone away. I will honor the Sabbath. I will take vacations. I will nap. I will allow rest to compete with work. Or you have the empire that says and pressures us, encourages us into uh, outrage culture. I mean, this is just what is normal. If, if somebody disagrees with you, somebody does something that you don't like, you demonize them. And uh, you take your rage and you take your anger to the internet. And as people of the resistance, we say, no, uh, I, 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 I'm not going to relate to people who disagree with me like that. I want to engage them personally, but I'll, I'll engage them with gentleness and with kindness and with patience and with humility. That's how I'm going to relate to people who, are, who believe things differently than me or disagree with me or maybe even hurt me. Or it's like the empire looks at you and says, um, uh, uh, encourages us towards indulgence. Um, do whatever feels good. Who cares what you do with your body as long as it doesn't hurt anybody? And as people of the resistance, we say, no, I, I, I'm not going to give myself over towards self-indulgence. I'm a part, of a, a part of a kingdom that values self-sacrifice. I'm going to choose to sacrifice what might feel good to me, what might make me comfortable for the sake of somebody else. That's what it means to resist. We're, we're protesting, we're pushing against uh, what, what, the, what the world tells us is normal, but we're not doing so with machine guns and picket signs and... Uh, snarky online posts. We're, we're doing so with uh, prayer, with love, with uh, generosity, with kindness. And if you choose to do this, if you choose to resist, to cut against the grain of the inertia of where, what everybody is telling us and what the culture is telling us and what even parts of our own hearts are telling us, if you choose to resist and choose the ways of sacrifice instead of indulgence, and giving of yourself instead of taking, and seeking kindness instead of hatred, you should know it is incredibly hard and incredibly challenging, and you probably won't be rewarded for doing it. So how in the world do you have the stamina to continue to choose to resist? Think of it like this. A number of years ago, they came out with this uh, amazing documentary over, uh, that featured um, one of my pastoral heroes, Mr. Rogers. Uh, the documentary is called Won't You Be My Neighbor? And there's a scene in that documentary that was, it shows like a five-minute clip from the original show, like from the 70s. And it features a Daniel Tiger before he was a cartoon, and he was just a really bad hand puppet. Uh, so you got Daniel Tiger, the puppet, and you got Lady Aberlin. And uh, this scene, you, you can find this scene, on, uh, this scene on YouTube, by the way, if you want to just watch this clip. It's an amazing little four or five minute long clip. Daniel Tiger is singing this song. And the song that he's singing goes like this. It says, um, sometimes I think that I'm a mistake. He talks about how he's not like other, other, other tigers are uh, strong and ferocious and powerful, and he's just like this shrimpy, weak, he's in touch with his feelings, you know, kind of little tiger guy. And so he sings this sad shame song about how he's a fake, how he's weak, he's not like other tigers, he thinks that he's a mistake. 
And you get to the end of verse 1, and you're just heartbroken for this, you know, little thing. And then verse 2 comes in, and he drops out, and Lady Aberlin starts singing. And she's countering his shame song with her own song. And her song goes like this, you are not a mistake. You are my friend. I think you are wonderful. I think you are special. I love you. I think you're amazing. She's singing this love song over him. And then she stops, and then when verse 3 comes, you expect for things to change, but they don't. Daniel Tiger picks back up singing the same exact song. I think that I'm a, I'm, I'm a mistake, I'm a fake, I'm weak. And as he's singing, Lady Aberlin starts singing her song over his. So both songs are now going off at the same exact time. It's like they're battling. They're competing for which song is going to win. Is the song going to be my shame, or is the song going to be my love? And they're going back and forth, and they're going back and forth, and of course, you know, this is Mr. Rogers. So at the end of the song, she wins. He drops out, and he believes her. He believes that her love for him is more powerful than his shame. He lets her love for him be the thing that defines him. It is, an ama- it is a moving, beautiful little scene, and I think in many ways it's so beautiful because it it, it is a snapshot, it is a picture of what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom of God. Because here we are, born into a world run by an evil empire, and we are enslaved to our shame, we're trapped in our flaws, trapped in our struggles, trapped in our addictions, no way out, no way out, and here comes Jesus. And with his life and his death and his resurrection, it's like the whole thing is this song that he's singing over us, telling us of his love for us, that he loves us, that he is for us. This is all made for us. He's given himself for us over and over. He's telling us his love, his love, his love. It's like he's resisting. He's pushing back against us. And, of course, we hear that song, and we're just like Daniel Tiger, and we start to resist. And we say, no, that story can't be true. It's, it's too stupid, too many contradictions. It doesn't make any sense. We push back and say, you know, the, the church who's singing this song, the church is toxic, the church is terrible, I can't take this seriously. Or we push back against it, we say, Jesus cannot be better than what I have in this life. This is dumb, and we resist, and he's resist, you know, back and forth and back and forth. And as many of you know, as you've experienced, uh, what it means to be a Christian is eventually to be overwhelmed by that love song, to have that song break through. And you begin to realize, okay, his love for me is actually what defines me. His, his appreciation and delight in me is what actually starts to open up appreciation and delight for him. It's his love for me that awakens my love for him. It breaks through. And that's, that's again, that's what it means to be a Christian is you start to let his love for you define yourself even louder than your own voice of shame inside of you. And the beauty of the kingdom, the privilege of the kingdom, is that we now become participants in that song. That's the song that we now sing. Because the kingdom doesn't just come to us, it comes through us. And so we woke up in a world this morning that is singing a very, very sad song of violence and greed and racism and indulgence. And we see it in the news over and over and over and over And as people of the kingdom, what do we do? We resist. We sing a different song. We sing a song of love. 
we sing a song of the sacrifice of Jesus, and we're willing to sacrifice ourselves too. We sing a song of kindness, and here's the reality, is that every time that we choose compassion instead of contempt, or we choose generosity instead of indulgence, when we choose the ways of the kingdom, we are making the kingdom visible in this world, where people can see it. It is already here. It's right there. I can see it. I can taste it. It's broken. We're imperfect, but people get a taste of it. The way that you get the stamina to keep resisting, to keep singing that song, to keep drinking of his love for you is you know that one day, someday, the kingdom is coming in all of its fullness, and it will all be worth it. That's how you get the stamina. So if you are somebody who would say, yeah, I'm a part of the kingdom. Jesus is my king. I want to encourage you this morning to not be discouraged, to not grow weary in doing good, to continue to give yourself away. You know, resistance isn't futile. Resistance wins. Jesus wins in the end. In the end, the kingdom will come in all of its fullness, and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, it is really hard for us to live in tension. It's hard for us to hold these realities together, and yet I pray, Father, by your Spirit, would you help us to do so? Would you help us to believe in many ways that um, utopia in this life is a myth, but we know that it's coming because we know that our King is coming. I pray that you'd help us to normalize struggle, knowing that struggle is normal in this life, and one day it is coming where struggle will be no more. And Father, in light of those things, I pray that you would help us to continue to be people who walk in the ways of Jesus, who choose the benefits of our neighbor over our benefits. We choose what might be helpful to someone else over our own comfort. We choose the ways of kindness and gentleness and peace and patience. Only you can work that in us. Would you do so? Everything in us, most of what is in us, uh, wants the opposite. So, Father, please work these things in us so that in many ways we might see the kingdom come here in Midtown, here in Memphis, and here in our world more and more. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.